The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Welcome to the Spectator's Book Club podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator, and this week I'm joined by Shalom Auslander, who I think is one of the funniest novelists writing today. His new book is called Mother for Dinner. It's his second novel. He's also the author of the memoir Foreskin's Lament and the novel Hope, a Tragedy. Shalom, welcome. Can I ask you to start by just explaining the basic premise of Mother for Dinner? Because I think you'll probably do it better than I would. Yeah, so Mother for Dinner is about a young man, his name is Seventh Seltzer, and he comes from a line of cannibal Americans. He's one of the last families. There was once a thriving Brooklyn community of cannibal Americans. I should say, by the way, that that's not true. People ask me, people are asking me, is, is that actually, is that in Bensonhurst? Like, I guess it's somehow because it's Brooklyn, it's believable. But in the world of this fiction, he's the last cannibal American family. He has 12 brothers, one sister, and an extremely domineering, hateful mother who, at the beginning of the novel, calls him and all his family together, tells them that she's dying, and her last words before she croaks are, eat me. Now, I should add that she's about 500 pounds, 6 foot 4, And not only have all the children, for the most part, I'd say, I think it's nine out of 12, mostly assimilated and ditched their cultural heritage, but not a single one of them knows the rules anymore. Even if they wanted to eat her, nobody knows how to cook her. Nobody knows what to do with the rest of her. And the only one they can reach out to in this time of need is their pre-senile dementia uncle, who was once sort of the leader of the community but really doesn't know what day it is anymore. And they need him to help them go ahead with the ceremony. So just your average, you know, Disney... (laughs) (laughs) Just your average Disney animated film. Exactly. I mean, I'm sure Disney will be snapping up the rights for an uplifting Pixar (laughs) adaptation. (laughs) I'm huge in Hollywood. When a sort of idea like this pops into your head, do you you kind of have a, a mental test of like, this is really going to alienate and revolt people, right? That's the plan. <laughs> no, you know, I'm actually surprised by the revolting part. First of all, God bless my editor, because you should have seen the early drafts. <laughs> they were much worse. There was a lot of blood involved, because there are certain rules about what you can and can't do with the blood. And, uh, you know, the speculation that it miraculously turns into wine after the death. And that's how you know you did the, the ceremony properly. But I actually, my test is just if it makes me laugh. And laugh in a very specific, sort of deep, <laughs> cathartic, therapeutic way. You know, Beckett had his four different types of laughter, I think, or three. This is a different one to all of them. It's just a very deep laughter. And at first, I'll just go, oh, that's funny, and write it down. But if it continues to make me laugh over a period of time, what I then start doing is, okay, what if it's not funny? Not in terms of like, what if the idea isn't funny, but what if I take this dreadfully seriously? Milan Kundera writes in one of his books about Kafka, 
and that Kafka's method, regardless of what academics say now, was essentially a simple thing. He would, as Kundera said it, he would go into the dark depths of the joke. So, and if you look at Kafka's stories and novels, that that is essentially what happens. It's uh, a guy wakes up in the morning and he's a and he's a bug. And clearly that spoke to Kafka's low self-esteem and his relationship with his family. And it gets worse and worse because now the family doesn't even care, blah, blah, blah. And so he basically just goes into it and goes, okay, well, how is this guy really feeling? Right? You wake up one morning, there's two cops in your bedroom and they're eating your breakfast and you're on trial for something. And by chapter two, he's deep into, you know, okay, so let's take this joke and see if it's real. And that always appealed to me, I guess, because to me, that's what life is. <laughs> life, life is a joke that we're all taking very seriously. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you're not here, then you're here. You come here in the most horrible of ways. <laughs> you emerge bloody and, you know, you, you start out covered in blood and screaming and cold. You probably end that way. And in between, we're supposed to try and find meaning. So life just always struck me as a funny joke that we're taking seriously. Voltaire had a great line that God is a stand-up comedian telling jokes to an audience that's too afraid to laugh. And I think we're more afraid to laugh now than ever at anything for different reasons. But that's that's the essential approach. So to me, it was like, okay, what this idea makes me laugh. Let me walk around town for, you know, 10,000 hours, think about why, talk to my shrink, talk to my wife figure out what about it is hitting me on a deeper level. And with Mother for Dinner, the idea of a mother dying and a son having to deal with that, I'm, I'm estranged from my family for 20 plus years now. But my wife's parents and my friend's parents of my age are getting older and sicker and deader. And so it's been on my mind. What do I do if I get the phone call? You know, come, come I'm dying. What do I do? I think I say you have the wrong number and hang up and then disconnect my phone line. But I was curious what a fictional character might do. So that was clearly the thing that spoke to me on an emotional level. And then on a sort of cultural level, I just, you know, I live in a, we all live in a world now where all we talk about is what makes us different. And I grew up in an isolated, ultra-Orthodox Jewish community always wanting to be part of a larger world and wondering why my world didn't want me to go out and the outside world didn't want to let me in. And feeling like that was probably the worst aspect of life and that we're better than that. So it, it, struck, it struck me culturally as interesting and probably more importantly, emotionally. So that's when it becomes like, okay, that's more than just a joke. Well, one of the things that you talk about, you know, with Kafka, and you know, you say it's life's a joke that we're trying to take seriously... This doesn't seem to me, you know, that could lead you into writing a very nihilistic novel. And it actually doesn't feel nihilistic. I mean, it's even, I was going to say, even more than we'd expect from you, but a lot more than we expect from you. There's a kind of sweetness in this book. Yeah. You know, I guess it depends on how you, how you look at jokes, right? Like, I think they're jokes, but the punchline is that it matters, right? Like, it is funny that we're here. And I have this ongoing war with tragedy. <laughs> I have this ongoing thing with it where I actually don't buy the whole Aristotle and poetics and catharsis thing. I, I think tragedy is our normal state and it's the thing we have to rise up against. 
I think comedy is harder because it's not, at least for me, the, the way I wake up. I wake up tragic. I wake up with an alarm shouting at me. My head hurts. I drank too much. The kids need breakfast and the dogs have to shit. And so I'm like, well, I don't need somebody else telling me how bad it is. I need to work every day to get to the point where I can laugh at it. And in that laughter, allow myself to see the beauty in it. Right? I, I can't look at it grimly and say, well... Everything sucks, and Willie Loman died, and nobody cared, but attention must be paid. Like, I don't, that doesn't help me. I can look at it and go, boy, it really sucks. You're going to work your whole life. Your kids will hate you. But at the end, at the very least, you die. <laughs> There's an ending. Hey, that's not bad. <laughs> it could be worse. <laughs> your life sentence could be more than life. So, but to me, that's not, you know, it's not finding the nihilism in it. It's finding, it's the opposite. Like, comedy laughter, because comedy is such a terrible, degraded word at this point, but laughter, I suppose, or levity or folly or whatever, you know, whatever you want to call it, isn't just a way to get through the darkness. To me, it's a way to find the light. So so that's where it comes from for me. You know, I remember reading lots of Rabali and the story of his books and how he got so attacked for writing these books about giants who piss rivers of urine and rampage over the countryside that he he wrote he was almost never going to write again because people were so angry about that that he that he laughed at these things and he had a term he used ageists or people who just refused to laugh and i feel like we live in a world of that right now and maybe that's why we have such a hard time finding the light finding the, the upside to things and not in a naive way but in a genuinely well I think if we can sit down at the table and laugh a little bit at our own ridiculousness. You know, in the in the novel, the one character who seems to have this point of view is Zero. And I should just, for listeners who haven't read the book, the, the mother wanted 12 children, much like the tribes of Israel, because she wanted to repopulate their people. They were the last family, and she thought they were going to... And she named them first, second, third, fourth, fifth, all, all the way through. Of course, as life would have it, because it's funny, the sixth one dies and it fucks up the whole counting system. <laughs> so when sixth dies, it ruins all the counting. And then even worse, when she thinks she's going to have the last child, who make the 13th, who will make up for the 12 minus 1, it comes turns out to be a girl. And girls don't count because it's a patrilineal culture. So she names her Zero. But Zero is the one who points out, you know... And teaches, in a way, seventh, the lesson, I think, that he comes away with, which is, you know, maybe maybe we're all just assholes, and if we all just admitted we were assholes, instead of deciding that we were all special, we could actually figure out how to get shit done. So I'm always confused these days by everybody, particularly disheartened as a lefty by the left, who feel like the most important thing is what sets us apart and keeps us apart. And I feel like, well, that's because we're all insisting that we're special. You know, I come from the chosen people, apparently chosen for genocide and blame. But I don't. But even if it was chosen for something good, I don't think that's a particularly smart way to start raising your children or telling anybody anything about themselves. None of us are chosen. We're all stuck here, you know, and telling ourselves that we're better or more important or more valid than others is, is just a dead end. So to me... That is funny. It's funny that we do that. And it's funny that the answer might be, hey, I suck. <laughs> you know, And you suck. And let's just get off our high horses here and figure this out. 
I mean, you know, as you kind of seem to suggest, these are some very Jewish cannibals. In... <laughs> <laughs> and obviously, you know, Hope a Tragedy, again, for readers who or listeners who haven't read it, and I commend it to them, has this kind of guy in upstate New York who discovers a very old and crotchety Anne Frank living in his attic in the present day. So, you know, and Foreskin's Lament... Also a Disney film. Also to... another Disney film. <laughs> it must come out. But in Foreskin's Lament, your memoir, you know, you begin by saying, describing how you were terrified. You know, the fear of God was put into you from a very early age. And I'm wondering how much do you feel that there's a sort of high road between that fear and the laughter that you're now moving into. I mean, is laughter yeah. a kind of reaction to fear or, or is it a sort of rage? And was there a point at which you went, I'm not scared anymore, I can laugh? I think it was, I'm so scared, I must laugh. The ultra-Orthodox in Israel call themselves Haredi, and what it means is the tremblers. Their fear is what they're proud of. And I grew up with a lot of fear of God. I grew up with a tremendous amount of fear of my father, who was in many ways at least as poorly behaved as God is. And I guess at, at a young age, you know, first it was Charlie Brown, honestly. It was Charlie Brown and Calvin and Hobbes, and they were, they were laughing at how much it sucked. I didn't really find myself, you know, reading Archie and, you know, Jughead because they had a they had a good life. It wasn't so bad. And then it became later in life, in my mid teens, it was sort of comedians. It was Bill Hicks and Richard Pryor and Lenny Bruce. And they were the guys looking at the dark and laughing. And then when I exhausted all that and got into books and reading, it was Beckett and Kafka on a personal level. Beckett on a more sort of social existential level, but uh, Vonnegut, even people who were kind of hideous people, Celine was hilarious, Flannery O'Connor was hilarious, and they're all laughing at the same thing. And I thought, well, that's, that's the way I can get through life. And since it was making me laugh, I thought, well, maybe I should, maybe I should do that. Maybe that's the way through. So I think that any time, yeah, I think there is a survival mechanism it's gallows humor, and we're all on the gallows from day one. <laughs> you know, that's what always struck me as odd. It's like, why is it a separate category of jokes? Are you guys not aware of how the story ends? <laughs> There's a loud thunk, the floor falls away, and it's over. <laughs> so that to me is just like, okay, I can... I always felt like if either there is a God or there isn't a God, right? If there is a God... There's only two other options. He's the asshole they told me he was, or he's the complete opposite, and he hates them. And so I got I to gotta imagine that either he's going to approve of my laughter, or he isn't. And if he's the asshole, and I manage to laugh my way through all this, I win. He can kill me all he wants, but I laugh, and I win. Like It's the one real power we have against darkness, whether that's emotional darkness, or we want to say that it, it's embodied by God in darkness. But if you laugh at this, you can not only find better answers, you can not only find some light, but you win. I laugh. I'm going to be in hell in a giant pot filled with my own boiling semen or whatever he's got going on. And I get to say, yeah, well, fuck you. I laughed. Yeah. <laughs> sort of upside down version of Pascal's wager, isn't it? <laughs> yes, exactly. 
Exactly. To me, that was just cowardice. Pascal's wager is like, it sounds nice. It's a nice phrase, but it's really Pascal was a pussy. Is it true, by the way, that you, I think as you wrote so in Foreskins of Men, that you went to the Wailing Wall and you wrote fuck you on a little prayer thing and tucked it in? <laughs> yes. Yes. And I, I like to believe it's there to this day. But yeah, I was really angry. The impetus for that was not just a sort of a moral ethical outrage. I, I had been after some girl. She turned me down. And then my mother called because she only called when someone was dying to tell me that my uh, grandmother, who is like the only kind person in my life, was near death. And she said, can you go to the wall and pray for her? And so among the Orthodox, that's our tradition. You go to the wall, you write down, you know, please save my grandfather. I'd like a large pepperoni with a side of fries and a large milkshake. And you stick it in the wall and God gives you whatever you ask for. So I got there and I'm like, please, I write down on the note, please don't kill grandma or whatever it was. As I'm about to stick it in, I'm like, no, you know what? Fuck this. He's an asshole. He's just an asshole. And so I asked some guy next to me for an extra piece of paper. I didn't have an extra piece of paper. And he's like, oh, sure. You know, because he figured I'm going to, I'm, I'm connecting with the Lord. That was a mitzvah. Yeah, exactly. And uh, I just wrote, fuck you and crumpled it up and stuck it in the wall. And then I walked away, you know, feeling like a hero. And I did a bit of a Pascal and I was like, oh, shit, <laughs> maybe that wasn't so well advised. And I ran back to the wall to try and pull it out. And that's a big no-no. And uh, some of the IDF soldiers who were standing around there grabbed me and threw me out. And I'm like, you know, you want to understand, he's going to kill my grandmother. But they didn't seem to care. They're like, who's this, you know, asshole American? <laughs> <laughs> And for once, the IDF was right. <laughs> Obviously, you know, you have issues with your childhood and your parents and you're estranged from them and you write, fuck you to God. But one of the most unexpected and tender parts of this mother for dinner is the fact that Seventh, you know, he's conflicted. And in the course of the novel, he starts to think, you know, what if this unbroken chain reaching back to my ancestors actually means something and is valuable? Yeah. Do you feel conflicted in the same way as Seventh? About everything. I was conflicted about doing this podcast. <laughs> I mean, conflict is our natural setting, you know. I think, I think if you think and if you feel, then you're going to be conflicted. Then you're going to wonder. I, I wish I were as defiant in some ways as First in the novel, who walked away completely and never wanted anything to do with it. He's sort of the, the angriest of the children. Or Zero, who just doesn't have any connection to it at all. And I guess it's just, that's the honesty. That's the honest part is, you know, if you just write and say, well, it's just a tirade against my, you know, or anybody's culture or history in general, which I don't mind because I'm very, history to me is, is something I think we need to overcome. Then you have to be honest about your own thoughts every now and then you know I have two sons and it's like oh god do I you know do I cut their foreskins off do I do I get them presents on Hanukkah do I let them know anything you know what if it is as Seventh's mother said you know you're the last link in the chain you know and if you if you break the link there's no the chain's only as strong as each individual link and you'll never be here and so I wanted him in the same way that I wanted to discover for myself what I might do in the event of a mother dying, 
by having a fictional character go through that, I wanted also to find out how I felt because that will be, and that is the ongoing question. There's always that, you know, what if that draws us back. It's, it's strong. It's a strong pull. This idea of, well, I'm a Jew or I'm a Christian or I'm European or I'm American and so, 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 so. And what if, what if I'm the last in the chain? And it, it's hard to get to, but for me, the answer is then so what? Worrying about the chain is worrying about the past. It sounds like it comes off as, well, what about, if you don't do this in the future, there won't be any Jews. Okay, but maybe there'll be no, no anybody. Maybe there'll be no anything and we'll all just be here. My grandchildren are not going to be white and they probably won't be Jewish. And I think that's awesome. That's a great ending. That's what we're moving toward. Whether the people storming the Capitol want to believe it or not, their grandchildren are also going to be of mixed race and mixed heritage. And that's a great fuck you to them, but it's also a great ending to the story. We're just dragging our feet getting there. So I struggle with it. But ultimately where I come out is as hard as it might be, and it is hard, even for someone like myself who despises everything I was taught and resents it, it's still hard, but that's the job. That's the job. It's, you know, so is marriage, but that's the job. You know, you sign up for it and you go, no, I'm going to be a better person. I'm going to try and make a difference, right? I'm going to leave the world better than when I got here. For some people, that means my kids are going to keep Sabbath. For me, it means that they won't. That business of, you know, the melting pot, which obviously is quite literalized in the book, there's a sort of subplot. Seventh works in publishing, and he quetches a lot about the idea of hyphenated identities and this sort of idea of there being, you know, everybody has to have a something American. But do you kind of get behind his criticisms of the publishing world? I mean, there is that sense now that, like, if you write... so, I mean, Janine Cummings was a good example of someone, you know, she wrote Mexican characters, she's white, and she got colloquially cancelled for doing yeah. so. Do you think that's a dangerous move or do you think that's exaggerated? No, obviously it's incredibly dangerous. I understand where it's coming from. I think this is all that, you know, fucking Flaubert's fault for writing, you know, uh, writing Madame Bovary when he obviously had a penis. I think that's that's next on the list. What what the problem is is that is that there have been injustices and there has been unfairness and there are voices that aren't heard, right? I just don't know the answer is so no one else can tell those stories. They're separate questions. That that, that needs to be addressed. That's that is progress to a to a degree that there's more inclusion, that there's more voices. But it can't be at the expense of what's wonderful about fiction and art, but particularly fiction, that you can get to understand someone who's not yourself and that you can find the commonality in it, right? Flaubert could write Bovary because he felt that way. He felt the same way, which is a credit to him because it's a wonderful character, and he understood that. He felt a kinship with that character. It's not wrong. You know, it's not a bad thing. I remember, you know, in an earlier iteration of this type of thing, when The Color Purple came out and Spike Lee was furious that a Jew should tell the story of, uh, of the South post-slavery. But to me, isn't that, isn't that an indication that we're crossing these lines that we care? Because the greater criticism to me would be Spielberg only makes movies about Jews. That's much worse. So 
I understand the impulse, but I think that certain things, and there's always going to be that immediate, you know, we're, we're sort of, particularly in America, we're a very adolescent nation. And I don't mean that only in the way we behave, but I mean, we're young. We're in our difficult teens, you know. We had a rough childhood. We beat up a lot of people. We were bullies. We haven't kind of gotten over that. There was some good stuff, some really good stuff. And now we're teenagers trying to figure out where we want to go. And so we make vast swings and we are reactionary. And the impulse behind those things is good. But I think we have to ask ourselves, well, okay, you know, I get the instinct, but is this the right answer? Yeah. And to, to some degree, what you're saying, you know, was, was one of the jokes early on between me and my publisher, which was, who can I possibly write about that won't protest? <laughs> well, one of the things you, you, you said your editor had at it and got away you know, removed a lot of these, the, the stuff about the blood turning into wine. Was that on blasphemy grounds? I mean, were you being, were you being silenced? No, 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 no. He's, God bless him. He's the same editor and publisher I've had for all my books. He just knows that I go in, I'm a motorcycle racing fan, to use a, a metaphor that people listening to book podcasts might not understand, but a huge MotoGP fan. And basically, and I've written, and basically there's, there's two types of riders. There's one who crashes, but is super fast, but crashes. And the other one who never crashes. And the people they hire are the crashers because they can slow them down. They can tell, they can tell them to drop a gear. But the guy who's hesitant and isn't going to go fast enough to crash is never going to get up to speed. Which is a long way of saying that my publisher knows that I'm a crasher. <laughs> and when I get out on the track the first few times, I'm all out. And he needs to go, well, maybe here's a good place to break. <laughs> maybe, maybe you've made that point. And maybe, you know, we can find other areas to explore because we've, we've established they're eating their mother. So it's just a, it's a smart editor. It's not, it's not a political thing at all. On the contrary, if I sent him something tepid, he'd be much more angry. Uh, what's what's the sort of reaction? Because, you know, your your books, it seems to me, are they're kind of bad taste, but deliberately bad taste. Do you get pushback, though? Do you? I mean, Anne Frank is a pretty sacred figure for a lot of people. Cannibals, not so much. But, you know, I mean, right. do you find there's, there's hostility? And are you surprised by the hostility? No, I'm surprised by the lack of hostility, to be totally honest. And I think it's something in the method. I think it's, look, with Anne Frank, because I'm, I'm a pretty harsh critic of myself. You know, we're talking now on Zoom, which I hate, not because of anything, but that I can't figure out how to not see myself when I'm talking. And I hate to see myself. So I have to devise some window over the window. So I'm very critical. And when, I, when it comes to Anne Frank, the point wasn't, oh, this will be fun. Let's go shit all over a child who was murdered by the Nazis. It was, let me look at what my relationship to this person was and see if I can find a new relationship. Because in that case, by the time I was 10, I hated her. From the age of six or seven, every year on Holocaust Remembrance Day, they drag us into the auditorium and show us her face and tell her her story and scare the living shit out of us and tell us everyone wanted to kill us. So I was sick of seeing her. And in the course of Hope a Tragedy, the main character who has that same relationship with her comes to understand her in a very different way, comes to appreciate her, adds some layers. 
by giving her another 60 years of life and wondering how she might have turned out, she actually becomes very sympathetic. She's a pain in the ass. But I think that's what was cool about Anne Frank as a kid. You read interviews with people who knew her, who were friends with her, before all the, the hideousness started, and they said, yeah, she was, she was a tough kid. She was a pain in the ass. She didn't like the religious kids in her class. They drove her crazy. She fought with her mother. This was not a girl who was going to grow up to be a, a wallflower. She was going to be Dorothy Parker. She was going to be a pain in the ass in the best possible way. And so the book ends with that. She's she's fantastic character. So it's not a Ricky Gervais, how can I make fun of Anne Frank moment in the same way that this isn't how do I do a gross-out cannibal scene? It's not a gross-out cannibal scene. They're, he's struggling with his relationship with his mother, his relationship with his past, and trying to find a way through it. So it may be that I like to, for whatever reason, it's a good discussion for me to have with my shrink, find the nobility in the darkest corners. So I wouldn't say bad taste, unless because that's just dismissive. It's just a way of categorizing something that people don't want to talk about but it's dark corners it's what gothic literature always does it's it's faulkner you know it's let me find the decrepits and see what's noble in it and see what's fun in it and so for me it wasn't like oh how do i that's why i liked my editor's suggestions because it was very much okay what are you doing here why are we doing this if this is just to sicken people and be proud of that well you know Chuck Palahniuk's got that market cornered, and you're not as good as him in that area. So let's find out what else you can do. Why are you doing this? What's in here? And what's in there is a very conflicted son, someone who wants to belong to America, but isn't quite sure if he should or what the cost will be. I remember as a teenager in yeshiva, me and my best friend at the time cut school. It was in uh, Washington Heights, which is like 180th Street in Manhattan. And... We cut school, got on the subway, took off our yarmulkes, went down to Madison Square Garden on 34th Street for a monster truck show. <laughs> and, and we get inside, which couldn't be more, you know, just heartland America. If it were today, it'd be all MAGA hats. But it was like, oh, my God, you're just in the thick of it, man. This is, you are goyish. Let's get some bacon. And we sit down and the crowd, it's packed. And there's a bunch of dirt and jumps in the middle, you know, where, where the basketball court would usually be. And two monster trucks sitting there revving their engines. And the MC comes out and he walks to the middle and he goes, all right, ladies and gentlemen, let's hear it from the Chevy fans. And half the place starts screaming for Chevy, for a mass marketed automobile. And then he goes, all right, let's hear it now from the Ford fans. And the rest of them start screaming and waving F-150 flags or whatever the fuck it was. And I just remember I put my head in my hands and I was just like, oh, my God, I've made a huge mistake. <laughs> this, this is where I've run to. This is the promised land. <laughs> These idiots cheering for trucks. <laughs> and I don't know that that question's ever been resolved. That's the conflict is... I don't like where I came from. I'm not so crazy about where I am. You know, I, I feel somewhat like the Israelite halfway between Egypt and, you know, Jerusalem. And you get to Jerusalem and it sucks. It's a fucking desert. There's nothing there. In fact, what is there are giants who want to kill you. And you're like, okay, 
I don't know, Cairo sucked, but this isn't good either. Where do I go? And that might just be the human dilemma. I think that's, we all suffer with that. We all struggle with it. So to me, it's like finding that area in that dark space because that's where we are. That's where we live. We we call it bad taste or we call it, you know, blue humor, whatever it is. But our greatest philosophers, you know, Nietzsche or Spinoza, they jerked off. <laughs> at some point, we're all human beings and we can either deny it or we can like look at it and go, OK, let's find let's find out what, what's going on here. You mentioned great philosophers. Montaigne is a big presence in this book. Yeah. What has he meant to you? I mean... Yeah, so Montaigne was somebody I discovered like in my 20s and it was a huge revelation. It was very, it was, I had come from a place of people who were certain all the time, who uh, knew exactly how many days it took for God to create the world, knew what blessing I should make, knew what wall I should stick notes into if I wanted my grandmother to live, knew everything. And I had left a bit and gotten into the secular world where they knew everything. They knew everything. Science knew everything. Every, there was no God. There was no this. There, they were certain. And suddenly here was this Frenchman, this from hundreds of years ago, writing about how little he knew, and yet was incredibly well-read and knew so much, but admitted that he didn't know anything. And he set off on this project to just essay himself, to just see what was in there. And I was just really taken aback. I I felt like he sh- could be alive today. He could be my friend. That here was someone who had wisdom and knowledge and the wisdom most of all, like Socrates said, to know he didn't know anything. But he was living that. He was actually living that. Of course, now he's a privileged, rich white man, so we shouldn't listen to him. But if you can put that horribleness aside for a moment... There's some wonderful things that he wrote and expressed that are genuinely beautiful because he's so confused. He he had a rule for himself that he was never going to go back and cross out and edit, that he would go and change his mind and he would add, but he wouldn't subtract. He wouldn't take away. He'd argue with himself. And so it's this incredible work of what fiction is always trying to do is, is you know, get inside a consciousness, show me a human being, um, and all his struggles and all his fears and hopes and laughter. And this is a nonfiction version of that. I mean, he put himself on paper. And so his works are something of a secular Bible to me. I, I go to them at random. It's not like I'm like, oh, I have a cold. Let me read his thing on death because I'm, I'm a hypochondriac. It's more just, you know, it's more just like reading it at random to see an approach to being that I don't I don't get from anybody else. I, Augustine just just railed on himself. <laughs> you know, he was just he was just horrible from day one. And God bless him for that. But this was someone who was just really going back and forth, up and down, trying to trying to go, how do we be? And he's a fantastic role model that no one's ever heard of. And I was gonna say sort of from the sublime to the ridiculous. You've also got this whole thing where one of the great villains of the book, at least in the Can-Am mind, is Jack Nicholson, the still-living actor who is <laughs> impugned, probably libelously, as an ancestral cannibal who failed to thank his religion at the Oscars and has therefore been cast into the outer darkness. 
why pick on Jack Nicholson? <laughs> what, what was going on there? <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. I don't know. I, I adore him. So many things that I write, I feel like, God, I wish I had his address. I'd love to send him something. A lot of the things he's been in, I look at as inspirations when I'm writing. And it just was like, at first I was like, okay, so who, who, who are their heroes? Who are their cultural heroes? They're, not got, you know, they're, they're dwindling now, but you know, in the, in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, there were a lot of them. So who, some of them had to make it out, right? So you know, the first one was Reagan. Like Reagan was obviously a cannibal. That just seemed like, of course he would be. And then it was like Arnold Schwarzenegger struck me as a cannibal. It's a lot of protein. <laughs> you know, it's, he's a, it's a keto diet. So I had those people, and I had a list. There was like an actual list. But somehow Nicholson, I guess because of his controlled anger and his humor and his just kind of being in the system but outside the system, struck me as really interesting. And so... I started just to read up on all on his life and stuff. And actually the name that the kids in the book call their mother is Mud. Because as she said it, the firstborn son couldn't say mother and said Mud. And that actually comes from Nicholson's life. That that was his relationship. His, they called their mother Mud because they couldn't pronounce mother. And then there's this incredible, incredible story. I don't know if you're aware of it, of Nicholson finding out that the woman he thought was his mother was really his sister and that the woman who was his grandmother was really his mother and that she had a baby out of wedlock and to hide it, they said it was the the mother's baby and just this crazy story that he never knew. He heard about it from a journalist. Like he, he was already a huge actor and someone sits down with him and says, hey, I did some research. Did you know your, your, your sister was your mother? And I just thought, wow, that really, that's part of what this story is, this they don't know their history. The history is made up. We we define ourselves by the past, but we don't know the past. We don't know what really happened. We don't know who came over when. Uh, you know, it's all rumor and myth and second, third, fourth hand uh, information, but it defines who we are. We let it define who we are. So that struck me as what a great example of a guy, of an, of an instance where you find out halfway through your life or more that everything you thought was true wasn't. And you know what? He didn't give a fuck. Didn't change his relationship. He loved them the same way. It didn't make him any different than who he was. He doesn't want to talk about it. But it was like, yeah, of course. Why should it matter? That was the past. What happened, happened. And the past and history strike me as such, such a weight on us, such an anchor, dragging us down. Our fealty to it, our fear of it, shame of it, just constant. So of all the people on the list... Reagan, I kind of wish I'd still got... Reagan's still in there as a cannibal, the first cannibal president. But Nicholson, because of his, you know, I just was watching, I remember as I was researching and watching the the Oscars where he got up and won an Oscar for Cuckoo's Nest. And watching it, he was like, I just want to thank. And there's this weird pause. There's just a weird pause. It's not anything huge, but it struck me as, I wonder if he's thinking there... Maybe that's a spot where he's like, I should just thank my people. I should just thank the cannibals. And he doesn't. He thanks his agent. Like, <laughs> in reality, he's just searching for the guy's name or something. I don't know what. But I just pictured everybody being at home being just horrified. Like, when I was a kid, there was no worse Jew than Woody Allen. It was like saying Hitler. 
in my in my world. You do not. Strangely, now, unfortunately, that's everyone feels that way. But back then, it was like, no, you do not mention Woody Allen's name because he was a famous Jew who joked about Jews and never said anything good about them. And you know, better to say Philip Roth. At least he's a writer. <laughs> <laughs> At least he wins something now and then. So it struck me that maybe Jack Nicholson was the cannibal American Woody Allen. Which is a food for thought to end on. Shalom, <laughs> Arsene. <laughs> Thank you very much indeed for your time. Mother for Dinner is out You're now. You're welcome. <laughs>